Welcome to the She Built This podcast, where we are sharing the stories of professionals and entrepreneurs who are on a mission to create the new norm by following their dreams and making them a reality. I'm your host, Emily Aborn, and together we are inspiring, growing, and giving you the tools you need to bring ideas to life so you can build whatever this means for you. Hello, and welcome back to the She Built This podcast. And I guess if this is your first time here, then welcome here. You are in for a total treat today. We both are, really. Um, And I hope you feel that way every time you listen to the podcast, but today you truly are in for a treat. As usual, I have a little story about today, how today's episode came to be, because the story of how it came to be actually has two morals. And last week, as I was putting all this together, I was thinking, what do you do with a story that has two morals? I sent out an email today sharing this podcast and along with the podcast and an upcoming uh, event, which I'll get into in a bit, I also shared a story about going to the grocery store last weekend and getting a very good life lesson in gratitude from the bagger. And if you don't get my emails, uh, I always try to fill them up with resources for life, stories, tips, inspiration, positivity, and more. They're really fun emails to get, I think. And I get a lot of good responses saying the same. So if you don't get them, you can go on over to shebuiltthis at shebuiltthis.org and get yourself signed up. Plus, if you're new here, it's that's a great place to learn about what this whole She Built This thing is because it's more than a podcast. It is an entire community of women who are working together to build their dreams, whatever success means to each of us alongside each other. All right, so back to the bagger story. My bagger story had two takeaways for me. One was that there was always a reason for gratitude. And two was that sometimes we need to rethink everything that we believe or assume about a situation or about life, which is exactly what we're going to get into this week with my guest, Terry Trespicio. And if you're thinking to yourself, Terry Trespicio, I think that name sounds familiar. It's probably because it does sound familiar. Maybe you're one of the 7 million people who have seen her TEDx talk, Stop Searching for Your Passion. Maybe you heard her last year at the She Built This Workshop in in February. Maybe you have seen her on the Today Show, Dr. Oz, The Early Show, The Martha Stewart Show, or The Anderson Cooper Show. Maybe you've seen her in Oprah Magazine, Mary Claire, Prevention, Business Insider, Forbes.com, Inc.com. Shall I go on? My point being, Terry is a big friggin' deal. And so of course, I thought to myself, she is way too busy right now promoting this book to be on the She Built This podcast with old Emily Aborn. I was incorrect in that assumption. Um, So I had the pleasure of meeting Terry in a gateless writing salon back in 2020, which was facilitated by one of our several mutual friends, Becky Karish. And to say that I was in awe when I first heard Terry read would be an understatement. In fact, I remember thinking to myself, wait a minute, she already wrote, she must have prepared that ahead of time. She did not just now write that piece. So one day, as I'm going about my morning, posting my recent interview with Julie Brown, another mutual connection on LinkedIn, Terry chimes into the LinkedIn conversation and says, hey, what's a girl got to do to get on this podcast? And I'm like, "Uh, that was all you had to do, Terry. (laughs) So the fact is, I had a plan. 
Um, I was going to do a solo cast about three out of the box ways to be more visible. And I'm like, I will do that later. Let's focus on this, this conversation. This was an opportunity for me to say, screw it to my perfectly formulated plan and take someone up who I really admire on the chance to have a wonderful discussion. So what do you do when a story has two morals? Let's go back to that question. Sometimes you share both morals. Sometimes you flip a coin and pick one. And sometimes you leave the audience to decide what the moral of the story is. But today you are in luck because I've decided to share both morals of what this tiny moment with Terry taught me. Moral number one, sometimes changing the plan is the very best thing that you can do. You can let life surprise you once in a while, and some of us need to do that more than others. Um, And I love to just see what new passions and new discoveries are waiting for us on the other side of these rigid plans that we put in place for life. Terry gets into unplanning a whole lot more in her book, and also we talk about it a little bit at the beginning of this episode. And moral number two, as we get into this episode, one of the biggest keys that Terry shares to her success around being visible is joining in the conversations that other people have and sometimes just asking for the opportunity. I literally applied this notion to something the day after I had this interview with Terry and I got the gig and it was like no small thing. This was not a small thing for me. Um, And it was all just because I asked for the visibility opportunity by being a part of the conversation. Okay, and speaking of fellow writers and mutual connections between Terry and I, this week's podcast reviewer is one of them too. It's a fellow Gateless writer and someone I have just been loving watching her share her stories and the passion for what she does in her own work. The review goes, lively and informative. I love listening to Emily's podcast. The guests and content are fabulous, and I'm always amazed at the number of takeaways I receive. See that? She has more than one moral too. Emily is a lively host who puts a smile on my face. I look forward to receiving her emails every week announcing her next guest. A big thank you to Deborah TC for this amazing review. Your reviews go a long way for a podcaster, so I welcome them with open arms and am really grateful to everybody who has been leaving me one. And if you have a few minutes to spare, I would invite you to do the same as well. Okay, so let me tell you what today's episode is about. You have probably noticed just as much as I have that there are some buzzwords that we hear a whole lot as entrepreneurs. One of these buzzwords, and it has some validity, is the word passion. Passion is, it's pretty important for us as entrepreneurs. And as you know, in my intro, I tell you to that we are focusing on following our dreams and making them a reality. That's another topic for another day. But what if everything that we've been led to believe about the word passion and what its role is in our lives is not entirely the full story. What if it's not exactly 100% accurate and maybe it's time to rethink our assumptions and reframe? So Terry and I talk about a lot of these ideas that we have about our business, our success, our self-development, because a lot of them are actually not all that helpful, especially when we're in the middle of adapting to so much change. So in my interview with Terry, we get into what passion really is and what we actually make it 
mean for us in our lives, where all this pressure comes to find our passion, where it comes from in the first place. Terry is going to share her thoughts on comfort zones and whether or not they really are the bad guy that we make them out to be in the entrepreneurial world, what visibility means to Terry and how we can get more of it in a way that isn't disingenuous. And Terry also gives her advice for aspiring authors and writers. So make sure you listen to the full interview for that. Terry Trispicio is an award-winning writer, speaker, brand advisor, and author of Unfollow Your Passion, How to Create a Life That Matters to You. She's a national conference speaker and was rated number one by attendees at Barron's and How Design Live. And she's performed stand-up all over New York City. Terry is a certified facilitator in the Gateless Writing Method and leads workshops for helping people tap their best ideas. She earned her MFA in creative writing from Emerson College and won first place for creative nonfiction in the Baltimore's Review 2016 Literary Contest. Terry lives in Manhattan. And if after this podcast, you're like, I need more of this person, I need more of this conversation, you're in luck, you can get more. You can go to unfollowyourpassion.com. And you can also you can get a copy of her new book there. And you can also come to join us in Keene, New Hampshire, this Saturday, January 29th, where she's coming to visit us all in person. It's going to be so exciting. She's going to read from her book, Unfollow Your Passion, take audience questions, and lead a gateless writing workshop to help you sort through the wisdom that doesn't actually work in today's world so you can start to build a life that is meaningful to you. With your ticket, you also get a signed copy of her book, and there is a She Built This special. If six or more She Built This members purchase tickets, you get a free in-person extra gateless writing salon with Becky Karish. I will organize and arrange it for us all. And you and I would be able to write together and sail into the glorious sunset arm in arm. So I'm going to have all that information in the show notes, Terry's website, the book, and also the event, which you probably, of course, assumed. But maybe we shouldn't just assume. <laughs> all right. Without further ado, let's get into my rich and lively conversation with Terry. Hi, Terry, and welcome at last to the She Built This podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Very excited. I'm so excited to have you here, and I'm also super excited to meet you in real life in like just a couple of days. Oh my God, I can't believe it. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. Um, all right, so I want to do something a little bit different and throw you a curveball. In instead of starting with who you are and what you do, which I would definitely want to get into, but I want to know what you are feeling passionate about right now in your life. Hmm. I am feeling, and it does change. Definitely changes a lot. My passion is a whimsical bird. What I'm feeling pretty excited about, well, there's a, there's a big thing and a very mundane thing. Um, the big thing is of course, you can't finish publish and launch a book without having a lot of firepower of passion behind it or else you're going to burn out fast. And I have been storing up, I think one of the best things about having a traditionally published book is that you have such a long wind up, like you know two years ahead that you get to store up a lot of excitement so that when it's time to really take it out into the world, you have energy to spare. So I'm pretty excited about that just because I worked so long on it as any author does. But the other thing that is not glamorous at all, because even I think a book is incredibly fun and glamorous, um, the thing I'm excited about is 
finally um, kind of taking stock of what I have in my apartment. I live in a New York City apartment. It is not a tiny apartment, but it is not huge. And you have to be real careful about what you have in it. And I get a little sloppy about that. I procrastinate decisions and I let things accumulate. And then I get mad at myself. And right now, what I've been really excited about is being really decisive. Uh, and I'll add this. My father is 82 years old. He's thinking of selling the house we grew up in. And he said, take your stuff and please leave with it. Like, take all your stuff out of here. And so I have this new treasure trove of stuff of my whole life. English papers from high school, from college, um, pictures and little figurines or things that I had, objects that I owned. And I have taken them back into my life. So I'm having a this is your life moment where you get to revisit all of that. And that's been really exciting for me. Okay, so the English papers, those are some of the hardest things to get rid of. And I don't know why. Maybe it's the A's. You know, it's like, I oh. love that. I love that validation even oh, today. Yeah, of course. <laughs> I went back and I was like, I wrote about what now? Modern art? I don't remember. Who wrote those papers? I don't remember any of the information. So I want to keep those because I want to go back and read them and say, what did I learn? That You know, what did I forget that I knew? Agreed. Um, all right. So my point in asking the question is, despite the fact that your book is called Unfollow Your Passion, this is not about living a life that is devoid of passion. Like, Oh my God, no. Yeah. We're not trying to suck all the joy and passion out of things. We're about busting through some of the myths around passion and, and what it means to chain yourself to having just one. So Absolutely. we're, we're going to get into that in our uh, conversation, but before we start, um, it's January as we're recording this, which means that you're probably seeing just as much as I am still, people are talking about like their resolutions and their words of the year and maybe even like their bucket list items for 2022. So I want to know what your thoughts are on all of these things and also how you prep and plan for a new year. Oh, uh, as you can imagine, I have a few opinions about these things. <laughs> I, like you, love my A's. I was a good student. I aimed to please for a lot of my life, right? And I'm proud of the achievements. And I'm big into having goals and being able to have something to look forward to. But what I've fallen out of love with, especially with the new year, is number one, having a calendar dictate what I think about myself. So if I thought I thought things were going well in November, why in January do I now have to atone for mm -hmm. and be, decide that last year I was bad, now I'm going to be good? I don't like that. It, it feels, well, it, it feels joyless to me. So I do like having a fresh page in, in the new year and saying, okay, well, what do I want to do? And I think it's a great opportunity for that. But I refuse to believe that everything I did before was wrong or broken, and now it's time to fix everything. I don't think that is, I think that's a way, great way to keep busy. I don't think it's a great way to exceed or to grow. And, so, and I know. think you're right about like, you know, sometimes a starting line can feel really intimidating. So like having Jan at January as this just like starting line, empty, blank slate, like sometimes that can feel intimidating. You're not leaving behind what you just did the year before. You're taking all that with you to yes. cross forward into the new year. So I love that. Like with this whole new year, new you, which has been with us for as long as anyone can remember what's wrong with the old you? Like You're still you. I'm still the same person I was at seven, at 17. Like this idea, like, oh, I'm not even that person anymore. Um, yeah, you are. 
Yeah. We, are, we are that person. It's just that we probably, hopefully, have a more mature response to things that happen to us. We have better coping mechanisms. We have more perspective. But this idea of disowning who we were, I don't know why that's a good idea. Because if you keep throwing away who you were, no wonder you get to 30, 40, 50, 60 years old and not know who you are anymore because you kept throwing your old self out. Well, I'm glad you feel that way because I don't know about you, but I woke up on New Year's Day and I was not a new me. <laughs> no, I'm you when there's nothing wrong with that. I was a little disappointed. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, all right. So that's it. That brings me to a great question, which I usually would ask first. But like, I, of course, I read your bio. Um, but how do you, in your own words, describe who you are and what you do? Yeah, it really depends on who I'm talking to. And I know who I'm talking to. I'm talking to a woman who is an entrepreneur and it's someone who is a writer. I'm talking to you and through you to an audience of, I'm going to say a lot of women, probably some men, but she built this kind of tells me, you know, and people who are looking to always have the resources in place to reinvent their lives and to, in ways that make them happier, right? So I know who I'm talking to right now. Put me in a room full of uh, financial advisors who I also work a lot with, um, and I will say something else. But here's what I'll say to you. I am a female business owner who has <laughs> been working for herself for 10 years and who very proudly will say she made it up as she went. Well, how I describe <laughs> what I do now is that I am a writer, a speaker, and a brand advisor, which means everything and nothing. But the heart of what that is is really – I am a former, well, not a former, but someone who has an MFA in poetry, who loves language, who wants to always seek out ways to bring poetry into, into business, into our lives in ways that capture what we do. So whether I'm helping someone with their tagline or their website or their TED Talk, it's all to me, it's all the same work. It's how do we get to the heart of what you're trying to say to distill it down and be able to communicate it powerfully and effectively. That is one of my most favorite things to do. I don't care what business anyone's in. I don't care. I don't need to know anything about what you do to be able to help you do that. And I find that really, really fun. So you don't need the the riches are not in the niches for you. <laughs> no, that was not. They're in everyone's niches. Oh, I, yeah, I yeah. niche. I jump from one niche to the other. I love doing lots of different things. I am industry agnostic. I am platform agnostic. I do one thing really well. I can get me and you and whoever I'm talking to down to the bones of what they're really trying to say and have been struggling to get out. And I find that that's really, really fun. I've also often called myself a human dialysis machine for language. Like you tell me what you're trying to say and I will wash it through me and help you get to a place where you can say it more clearly. Oh, I love that. That is beautiful. Um, and I think we're all kind of making it up as we go along. So, totally. <laughs> um, okay. So let's let's talk about the book a little bit. Um, as entrepreneurs, I mean, we see it constantly where it's like follow your passion, um, follow the passion. Mm -hmm. Where do you think all of this pressure? Like, where do you think it came from to find our passion and follow our passion? Well, there's a lot of theories on that. I mean, certainly Cal Newport's written a lot about that. There's a lot of people who have studied sort of the archaeology of that idea. I mean, I remember back when I graduated from college in the 90s, uh, everyone's handing you like, what color is your parachute? And I remember looking at it and just feeling like I needed a nap. I believe, and I will make this claim, that I believe the desire to define and name and categorize brand 
and sell what we do is kind of an obvious part of what it meant to be growing up in the age of the industrial revolution. Well, not in the age of, but in the shadow of the industrial revolution. What did it do? It showed us and introduced the world a way of scaling products, making things en masse, making them marketable, making profit from doing a lot of things. And each product has to have a very specific thing so you can sell that thing. And so in my mind, and we have widgetized ourselves. We think we have to become this one thing so that we can sell it. And for some people, that is how they choose to do what they do. And that's great. I'm not telling you anyone how to sell or market their business. But I refuse to be widgetized because I find it terribly boring. And I try to help people unwidgetize themselves because there is a pressure. Pick a major, pick a field, pick an industry, pick a job and stick with it. And that just isn't what life is like anymore. And I don't think it has to be. I think we're told stick with something practical and secure and just go with that. I mean, do you agree? Does that sound right to um, you? So first of all, I've had 42 jobs in my life wow. <laughs> trying to quote unquote, find my passion. And I, I think that when, when, when I was 17 years old, the pressure was that I was going to figure out what I was going to do for the rest of my life. And, oh, and that was health education, which I loved to, I loved reading the back of cashy cereal boxes and nature Valley granola bars. So surely my passion was health education. Um, so that is what I went to school for and tried very unsuccessfully for those 42 jobs to to tell me why, because there was definitely some kind of interest you had there. What about, I'm I'm definitely still interested in health. I mean, I'm interested in figuring out how to be healthy for myself, but I, and I definitely love educating other people and I loved writing about health. So it was the those kinds of things. But my point being like when I actually got into the field of health education, I was like, okay, there are so many other things out there that I could be doing um, Mm -hmm. that are not focused on, on other people's health, which I'm not interested in other people's nutrition at all. In fact. Oh, well, see, that's how, you know, you were like, I don't want to talk about that. Like, I don't want to do this. It's so funny. Someone will usually go into health education, or maybe you just like to know what you're putting in your body and you like to write. You know what I mean? Like, all right, when I was a kid, I used to love reading the like Sears catalogs, but here's what I love to look at. I love to flip to the section um, uh, with the towels and, and stuff and see how they named the colors. Oh, I fun. loved reading catalogs and names of colors. I just like to have the names. The, I didn't know. I mean, actually, I did go on to work for a catalog for a little while, but that was not a direct connection. It wasn't like I knew I was going to do that. But Paying attention to what draws you is interesting, mm-hmm. but as you are living proof of, it doesn't mean you have to go into that industry. You have so many skills, Emily, and you've experienced that through all the different jobs you've had that you got to learn a little bit about yourself, but it sounds like you were also kind of kicking a dead horse there for a while. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I think that I was sitting around waiting for inspiration and passion to strike me into, oh boy, you know, like waiting for these things to like fall into my lap instead of a appreciating where I was in every single job at every single time and the skills it was giving me, and b taking any sort of initiative to figure out what those things were that I loved to do. Um, so so you're blaming. You're being pretty hard on yourself, though. No, no. Yeah. I'm just saying. Like, I'm I'm kind of like in in this. You know, like I'm mm-hmm. like, all right, this is this is the idea I was fed, and that's the, right. Yes, yes. And so this is what I did. Um, so where are we going wrong with this idea of passion, and like, what are we missing? 
I think the, my goal anyway, and, and why bother doing this whole book on it, like I already gave a talk, it's 10 minutes long. You can read it and get the gist of it right there. The book isn't all about that because if you can get it in 10 minutes, you don't need a book, but it's really about more than that. Underneath the surface of the passion thing, what this book really is, and it hasn't been marketed this way, but it's really my attempt to help people feel more comfortable thumbing their nose at a lot of conventional wisdom and advice mm -hmm. that never served anyone but sounded good. So that when you're sitting there in your desk and your job that you're bored with or you don't know what you want to be doing, that you go, my God, is something wrong with me? This is what keeps me up at night, right? People kind of pathologizing themselves, thinking, why can't I be like everyone else who loves what they are and has found their perfect thing? No one no one is thinking they found the perfect thing necessarily, or maybe it'll be perfect for like six months or five years and then they're tired of it. My goal with this is let's unseat this idea that there's one passion per person, that there's one way you're supposed to live your life and that your job is to hurry up and figure it out or you failed at life because there's far too many people giving themselves a very hard time that they chose wrong or didn't know or should have been a dentist or should have not been a dentist. It's too much. We tend to look at our lives through this tunnel vision of, I should go follow my passion. I don't follow my passion around because I bring it with me wherever I go. I can talk to a financial advisor and feel incredibly passionate about the ideas we're discussing, and I can go talk to someone else and be passionate about that. I choose to bring passion to every discussion because that makes it more fun. I'm not waiting for one idea to hit me too much. And and like folk you know remembering that passion is an emotion. It is something that we can That's that right. we can evoke. <laughs> oh my gosh. Just like um ex just like excitement or sense of calm or lust, all the things we feel as humans, passion's just one of them. Why did we think we should make one the goal and then pursue that one forever? It's too much pressure. Life changes too much. We evolve so much and our tastes change and our situations change. The idea that you're supposed to keep doing a thing, especially if you're done with it, seems nuts to me. Okay. So the other uh, pill we may have swallowed, so to speak, or, or philosophy we may have swallowed, which we hear all the time as a super buzz phrase in the entrepreneurial world, is that um, success is on the other side of your comfort zone. And actually, I wrote down a quote in a book I recently read that says, comfort zones are the enemy of freedom. Oh and my God. <laughs> I imagine that you're going to have some thoughts on that. I, I go back and forth on comfort zones. I recently asked the She Built This group like their thoughts on it and I got a whole variety of answers. So I would love to hear your thoughts on comfort zones. Right now, just so you know, I am wearing sweatpants and a t-shirt and I am very comfortable. <laughs> yeah. Who wears who opts for things that are not comfortable? I also am in stretchy pants and soft shoes. Um, I... I understand the intent, especially in an age of motivational speaking or trying to encourage people to try new things. I believe the intent behind get out of your comfort zone is a good intention. It's saying, don't let fear get in the way and let's do more, yeah. try more. Don't just sit at home and not try. I understand that. But I also think that aiming for discomfort is the wrong goal. And I think anyone who aims for discomfort because they just like being uncomfortable is either lying or their comfort zone just looks different than yours and mine. Mm. 
Because someone who says, no, you got to sleep out under the stars and rough it. And sometimes it rains and it's so cool because you're out in nature. I don't want to sleep out in the rain ever. If someone says to me, well, Terry, you don't want to sleep out in the rain because you don't know how to get air comfort zone. No, that's not true. I just don't like to be wet. And so if you like that, if you like to be out on the edge of things in nature, it's not that you like being uncomfortable. That's your comfort zone. Someone who likes roller coasters and thrill and says to me while I hold your purse because I'm not going on the roller coaster and says, oh, you should get out of your comfort zone. I should do what you want to do? Because when people say that to me, it's usually because they want me to do something that I don't want to do. I think it's a little bit agenda driven. Don't tell me I need to get out of my comfort zone because you wish I would go with you to do a thing that I don't actually want to do. And don't tell me that no one opts for more legroom if they can get it. We do not thrive outside of comfort. We yearn for it. We look for any shred of comfort we can have. So the person who thinks they're going to rough it and go take a million ice baths and run an ultra marathon, that's great. But don't tell me it's because you simply like to be uncomfortable. <laughs> like that's not why you're doing it. You're reaching for something. And, and I don't agree that comfort is the same as complacency or laziness or stasis. It is not. When I'm in my comfort zone, I take risks. I try new mm -hmm. things. I am able to do the thing that I would rather do, which is expand my comfort zone so that I can fit more in it. I would venture to say that even the people that are sleeping under the stars in the pouring rain enjoy the extra leg room on an airplane. <laughs> oh my God. They'll be uh, the first one. Are you kidding me? They'll pay to be uncomfortable and sit in a, in a sweat lodge for five days and they're going to fly first class home. So, you know, come on. Like the other thing is that when you tell someone to get out of their comfort zone, either you're being agenda driven because you wish they would do something you want them to do, you want them to come with you or to buy a thing, or they like bullying. There's a kind of life coachy bullying that I don't like the tone of, but it also presumes that I just hang out comfortable all the time when most of us are uncomfortable at least a few times a week, if not per day. So don't tell me, oh, you should get out of your comfort zone as if I'm just hanging out up here all the time. Most people are uncomfortable a good enough number of times that I think it's sort of patronizing to tell them they should be uncomfortable more often. And our mutual friend, Becky Karish, says that uh, there's a lot of creativity that happens inside your comfort zone. Like when you feel safe and you feel comfortable, that's where a lot of like creativity and inspiration sparks from. Not when you're, you know, like if you're dangling off the edge of a cliff, you're not exactly coming up with ideas for your next novel, most likely. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I mean, that is the heart of the gateless writing method, which Becky and I are both certified in and teach and use in our own lives professionally. Because that's true. And research by people like Marcus Buckingham, who's a brilliant thinker and observer of human nature and how it applies in management. And he says, take a person out of their comfort zone. They will do very little but be able to think about when they can get back inside. When you take someone out and either mm. criticize them or make them uncomfortable in some way or push them too far, you are not going to get the best out of them. No way. Because your stress is high. You're not going to have the breadth and the, like the space to actually tap your creativity. That comes from having a safe space. Now, safe is, you know, it's not an objective term. We don't know what we define by safe, right? It depends on who you're talking to. But yes, as you know, I'm like, as you've been in those workshops with us, 
that being comfortable is where you can ease into mm -hmm. and have access to the party that makes you brilliant. And since we're talking to a lot of women business owners, I want to add that I don't let bros tell me what it is like. Uh, or I, I don't let bros tell me to be uncomfortable because women have been made to embrace discomfort for all of human history and how convenient to tell a woman that she should be okay with being uncomfortable. We have had it with that. And there is no more time for women to accept the idea that we should be uncomfortable for someone else's sake. Like, dude, come visit once a month and you'll know You're what like, it's like to be uncomfortable. Brad, one day, Brad, try being a woman for one day. You don't know. You want to tell me to be uncomfortable? You have no idea. <laughs> That is so true and so funny. Um, it's bringing me back to this time somebody, somebody, you know, I don't do well with like impromptu phone calls um, or just generally being put on the spot when I'm not prepared about the situation I'm going into. And this person knew that and they, they put me not only on an impromptu situation, but they put me on speakerphone in like a group of, of people and asked me, you know, my thoughts on something. And I just remember being like, you are literally going to get like, I'm in panic mode right now because all I can think about is how to like end this call. And you're trying to ask for like my best creative idea, like pick my brain on speakerphone. They you know what I that, mean? Why would they do that to you? Uh, th because of the exact thing that you're saying where people say, you need to push out of your comfort zone. Like this is a comfort zone thing for so, you and you just need to push through it. So a panicked Emily is the Emily we all need in our lives. We need Emily who's panicked and fearful so that you can be like that person who happens to like impromptu calls. Because yeah. if you're at your best when you're prepared, it's unfair of someone to expect you to be at your best because of the way they see it. So no, absolutely. I agree with you. Like some things I'm okay with being impromptu about and some things I'm not, but I get to decide. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Oh, I'm so sorry that happened. That's that's No, no. I just it, I'm just bringing it's like it's just solidifying your point. I'm like, "Oh, I love this. I am staying. Did it make I am you a, better at it? Did it make No. You like you I was like Now I will just never answer your call again. So, yeah, there exactly you go. Right. <laughs> um, no. It just it just I'm it solidified your point and I love I mean, personally, like I find routines to be a great example of a comfort zone. You know, like you have your morning routine and, and probably you have some exercise and some uncomfortable things in there too, but in your routine is for a lot of people where they find that groundedness and where they find their most productivity and their most creativity and, you know, the energy that they need to start their day. So, I think there is huge huge value in it and I think I've officially decided that that's my stance after this. <laughs> but the thing is, Emily, you are a risk taker too, right? I mean, like it, it's not the opposite of growth. That's all I'm saying is it's right. not the opposite right. of that. And exercise right. is actually a great uh, example of that because in the past year I got into like doing more weight training, which I hadn't done for a bazillion years. And it's hard. And yes, you'd say, well, it's uncomfortable and you like it. So you must like being uncomfortable. No, I like the sense of, oh, look, yeah. I can lift a heavier weight now. I'm like, whoa, I'm getting comfortable in my body. I'm feeling so much stronger. That feels good to me. And after I shower, I feel like a million bucks because I did some weightlifting. So it's, it's making me be able to do more things. It's squarely part of my comfort zone. And you're right. Routine is a wonderful way to get into that rhythm. Um, I hear you with the weights because I am in the same boat with you. My doctor's like, you really need to start lifting weights before you get, you know, older. <laughs> and I'm like, oh dear. 
<laughs> You're talking to the wrong girl. Um, okay. This month in She Built This and also in, on the podcast, I'm, I've been focusing on visibility. And I see you, Terry, as like the queen of visibility. You are what? everywhere. You oh are my on God. What? every podcast. You're just everywhere. You're like the queen of it. So first of all, I want to know if this like just all kind of came natural to you and you're just doing your thing. Um, and no. secondly, if you have any sort of like tips, secret story strategies, that kind of thing around well, can it. We, I want to go back and just define how you think about visibility specifically. Are you talking about like what people say, putting your work out there? Is it about literally booking yourself for things? Like what part of that do you think that people struggle with in your community, especially? Yeah. So I think putting yourself out there is a huge one. I do think that um, sharing your unique thoughts and message is another piece of it. But visibility, you know, visibility to me is even like I see people being held back in uh, pitching themselves to being on a podcast because they're afraid that they don't have anything to say, even though they've Ah. been they've been saying things for, you know, 50 years. (laughs) So um, things like that. Um, You're just very, very good at it. And you put yourself in a lot of situations where you have visibility. And I think like because of that, it's it's part of being successful. You know what I mean? And it's a piece of being successful. Um, So, yeah, that's why I'm asking. I'm naturally uh, not good at that. Like if we're going to look at our natural state, I'd rather maybe not do it as much. (laughs) Like the question of visibility because it feels like an on-off switch. We think, I'm out there. Oh my God, it's on. Or I'm not out there. (laughs) And the fact is, I've been sort of humming along, trying to pitch in on the ongoing engine that is online conversation for a long time. I don't go on social media nearly as much as it might appear. I don't actually do a ton of consuming of it, but I also know that I need to keep a foot there because my people are there. And so I am not just, I'm not like, oh, it's just natural. No. I mean, I, first of all, I have been out there a lot more because uh, I have a publisher who would like me to sell the book and I would like to sell the book, but it's not like, hey, buy my book every second. It's, well, what do I have to say? Let me see what I've been writing about. But even before, let's take the book out of the equation. Because when you have a book to promote, you have the book, the content in the book to promote. Let's say no book. I didn't have a book till two seconds ago and I was on there. And here's how I do it. I don't actually think any one post matters all that much. I don't think anyone's judging me on that one post. I don't think most people read Mm -hmm. a post. If we're talking about posts, okay, because there's emails, which are your own domain. And then there's the stuff out in the world that someone might come across. I actually don't think that any one thing I do is so important that it would cause people to hate me or loathe me or whatever. If they don't like me, they don't like me privately, whatever. I did post a thing about how I was on the Today Show recently, which was a really big deal for me to be on for the book. And people are so wonderful, right? Oh my God, they like it. This is so great. One person I don't know wrote in the comments, I watched your segment. You don't know what you're talking about. Oh my and goodness. Thought, this is perfect. And I laughed at it because I was like, I don't know you. I don't care. I'm leaving it up there. It's hilarious because this is some of the fallout that you get all your people in your community to support and like or ignore your stuff. And then one person's going to say something nasty and none of it actually matters. Tomorrow, any one of these platforms could go down and anything you posted on it will go down with it. What matters is not any one post. It's are you participating? Are you commenting on other people's things? Are you noticing, you know, what's being talked about so that you can contribute something? And are you sharing, yes, some of your own thoughts? 
I have coached experts for a long time. And the biggest hangup they say is, well, I don't know if I'm the expert. No one's the expert. We are all expert on a few things. So I would say to everyone listening that you do have something worth saying, but you can't depend on the audience to tell you you have something worth saying. You have to walk into that room, that social media room, assuming you've got a few things to say, because I guarantee you, you do. What do you talk to your clients about? What do you, you know, think about a lot of the times? I share that stuff because the more people feel that they're talking to me and having a real conversation, not a promotional, not receiving my promotional stuff, the more they want to stay in touch. Because if all the platforms went down, you still know who your people are and you could find them again. You have, you know who they are. Yeah. That's what the purpose of the visibility is, is to stay in touch with, with your world, not to somehow put it out so that now everyone, like, oh my God, I just, my blog went live. Yeah. And like a tsunami just overtook some ancient, like shore, like who knows? Don't put so much weight on any one thing. I, a recent podcast guest of mine, uh, Angela Lucier says that she defines visibility as connection and communication and conversation with your audience. With, I don't even, I don't even That's like it. the word audience, but you know what I mean? With your people. Um, and so I think you, like you, you summed it up exactly like she did. So I you just that. said something interesting there. I want to hold on that because you said audience makes you feel a little weird because it makes it think I'm on stage, right? Or you're on stage and everyone else is sitting there passively. Let's not use audience. Let's say, let's think of it as community, that we're hoping to contribute to the conversation. For instance, if we went out to dinner with like five people, five entrepreneurs, we're going to go out to dinner, we're going to talk. Imagine if if you sat there and didn't say a darn thing <laughs> the whole dinner, and you just sat there and drank your wine and ate your meal and didn't say anything because, well, who are you to say anything? And who are you to take a space? And you're not the expert. So you don't say anything. Quite frankly, it's just rude. It, it, it seems like you don't have any interest in what anyone's saying. If you look at visibility not as having a brilliant post, you know, working all day on your post, what if you just go, hey, what about this? You wouldn't think about that if you're having dinner with your sister. You wouldn't go, what am I going to say to my sister next? Well, maybe you would. But, you know, for the most part, you would just keep the ball in play. And okay. you're, you're totally right. So you you brought me to another great point um, when it comes to getting more visibility. Okay, the guy that wrote the comment on yours about the Today Show, like, honestly, you didn't even have enough time on the Today Show for me to have made that judgment about you. <laughs> like, I wouldn't have known in the short amount of time that they gave you. I was like, wait, that was it from Terry? <laughs> she could be on here it's for an hour. Minutes. Oh, my God. It's three minutes. It's nothing. Yeah. Of course. Of course. That guy, and I think it's a guy, who cares what he thinks? Yeah. What, was he, he's, my, he's my biggest client. <laughs> people choose to aim at other people on social media as a kind of like skeet shooting. They're out to just aim and fire and they'll say whatever they want. And I don't have time for that. And no one does, especially a business owner. We don't have time. If all of my people said, hey, we're not happy, I go, whoa, what's happening? Right, right. They don't hold stake. They can say what they want. And it's hilarious. There's a lot of people out there saying really dangerous things in the media right now. And me talking about how you should, how you should like think about your career. I don't know anything. Okay, great. Um, so when it, when it comes to like increasing your visibility though, what I was going to say about building your community is 
I think commenting on other people's things, like when obviously not the way that he did. No, no, right. Um, but I think that commenting on other people's things is a huge piece of it that we so often miss. Like you, you don't want to be the one that's at the dinner table not saying anything. You want to be an active participant in other people's conversations too. Not that you need to spend all of your time sitting on social media, but you do need to engage with the people. Like I love engaging on people that I follow that I'm like genuinely yes. interested in what they're doing and saying, not just giving a little heart. You know what I mean? Like, oh my God, when, no heart. When you, yeah. When you can take time to make a thoughtful comment and participate in what they're saying, because I do think that we miss that when it comes to visibility, we miss that other people's conversations are our conversations too. Right. Exactly. Oh, it's so beautifully put. It's not like, give me that microphone. You know what I yeah. mean? It's not like, <laughs> I'm going to lecture you. It's exactly that. Like when, for instance, when this podcast comes out, I will be doing a post that talks about you, not about me. It'll be, listen to this brilliant woman. She's got this great podcast. You should know about it. We push out resources. My friend, Laura Belgray, who I know that you know, um, and she does this too. In fact, she'll say, hey, everybody, here's what I watched and binged over Christmas break. And she'll just, she just says, here's what I watched and here's what I thought about it. She's doing her own column. You know what I mean? Like people sharing the resources and spotlighting other people. If you feel weird talking about yourself, don't have to talk about yourself. You could say, hey, I read this article and tag the person and go, isn't this brilliant? Or look at this person. You can increase your visibility by shining a light on others' work so that you have A, something to talk about, and B, you're sharing some applause and attention for that person. We talk about being a good literary citizen, which means you know supporting other authors' book launches and reading other people's books and talking about them and being in the citizen, you know, being a good citizen. Same with social media. It's not about the whole world, right? Emily, we're not trying to talk right. to everyone. We're only trying to talk to the people that we would like to have dinner with. And that is a very small world and it can be a very powerful community. But that's the goal is to keep talking and offering things to them. It doesn't have to be, oh, look at me, which I know turns a lot of people off. And honestly, some of those conversations, like Laura's email, I'll use as an example, I wrote her back and I was like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And I have to like respond to all of these things and send her a bulleted list of the ways that it resonated with me. So, yes. you know, like sharing other people's work does that for people too, just oh as God, much as sharing so your own. Excited. She's probably thrilled. She loves when people write back and you tell her what you loved about her work. I mean, that is a way to connect. Like that is a really powerful way. And it's not agenda driven, right? You're not telling her what she should do. Right. Um, you're telling her, here's what you did. I loved. This is an, uh, I know it gets used a lot, but a good conversation that is constructive and builds is a rising tide of visibility. It's not about muscling the mic away from someone else lest they get more attention. I, I give attention to other people and I, I find that it's it's very fulfilling and it helps strengthen the relationships, which are the point. Yeah. Agreed. Um, okay. Let's for like maybe for aspiring writers and authors out there, I'd okay. love to transition if you don't mind into the actual process of writing the book itself, because Ooh, if, yeah. yeah, if I recall, okay, well, first of all, I want to talk about the first time I ever heard you in a gateless writing salon. I had done maybe two or three of them and then Terry comes in and oh. you read, you read your piece and I was like, Oh my God, like my jaw probably dropped to the floor. I was like, I am in the presence of something great. So what? Who knows as, what that, that piece was? Okay. So as you're, as you're writing your book, what I've heard you say 
is that you didn't really know you were writing this book. Nope. Um, so, so can you talk to us a little bit about the writing process for you? Yes. I wanted to write a book for a, a million years and was like, I kept starting with an idea. I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. Yeah, that'd be cool. And I'd start to write it and I'd be like, nope. I would just be blocked. If I, it's kind of like if I created the box, I couldn't fill it. That's just me. I didn't work that way. So what I did was accept Becky Karish's invitation to go to a gateless retreat years ago, maybe eight years ago. And I was like, what is this thing? And she's like, just come. I think you'd be great. I think you'd love it. And so we sat around in this cozy little home in Rhode Island, led by the one and only Suzanne Kingsbury, who led this retreat. She said, okay, I'm going to give you a prompt and you're just going to write for like 20 minutes. And then you're going to read what you wrote to everybody in the room. I was like, uh, okay, like rough draft. Yep. And so we read out loud and she said, now we're going to talk about what we loved about what we heard. We're not going to fix anyone's work. And I was like, well, how am I going to learn that way? I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, I want to get better. I don't need you to compliment me. And she said, no, 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 honey. <laughs> you don't understand how this works. This is how you're going to get better. And she was right. But the reason I mentioned that, Emily, is that that weekend, something opened in me and I realized, oh, I can enjoy the process of writing and not know where it's going yet. And I told her that first weekend, the first private conversation I had with Suzanne is, I'd love to write a book, but I don't know anything. And I don't know if I could do this or do that. And she said, honey, don't worry about that now. Let's just write. So I went on every retreat she offered. I went on two a year and I wrote in between when I felt like it. Honestly, I don't write every day. And I just leaned into it. I said, what's fun? And here's the beauty of this kind of particular method is that after years of writing and then reading it out loud, I knew what people liked. It's like having mm -hmm. your own little focus group. You could hear them laugh. They said, oh, I love that part. So I was like, oh, you love the part that I love to write. That means I should lean into what feels really good. So when I said to Suzanne, okay, what do I do about this book? She said, how many words do you have? I go, oh, I have a bunch of pages. She goes, yeah, you need a lot more. Keep writing, call me in a few years kind of thing. <laughs> and so I was like, okay. So I just kept writing and, and using it as a way, using the writing as a way to explore what I wanted to do. I didn't know it first because every time I'd try to come up with an idea, I didn't know how to write it. So I tried to do it this way, to invert the method. And I wrote for years and years. And then I had a whole bunch of stuff. And I did work with Suzanne privately, which helped expedite the process. And I said, now what? And she's okay, now we create a proposal for what we think this book is. And when I had that ready, a proposal is just basically a marketing platform. You know, it's a marketing paper. It's like, here's the book I'd want to write. Here's how I think and why I think it would sell. Here's some other books that it's like, and some people I know who might be able to help sell it. It's really kind of like you're pitching the publisher to give you money because you could maybe sell something for them. Otherwise, you can go publish it yourself. Right. So I did that. I had a proposal for a totally different book. It mm. was called How to Swallow a Button because there's a story in the book about how a little girl I used to play with made me swallow a button off her bedspread. And clearly, I never forgot it. It was kind of traumatic. And I thought, God, all the things we swallow as people and as women, um, there's something here. So it was stitched together in a way that it was a viable book. You know, it's a collection of pieces, or I wasn't sure what it was. And then I did pitch it to a few agents, some of them I knew personally, and they never wrote back. Others wrote to me and said, this is too hard to sell. And they said, um, my least favorite advice from agents was, oh, well, what you're trying to do is really hard. 
it's really hard to publish in that space. It's really, you know, uh, essays are really hard. This is really hard. I said, listen, I know it's hard. I didn't start writing yesterday. But what I'm understanding is you can't sell it. Now I know that you're not the agent for me. I didn't say that, but I was like, okay. I got no and no and no at every turn. And then one woman, because you only need one, who I had met at an event, she had said years ago, she'd said, oh, if you ever have a proposal ready, send it to me. And I wrote to her and I said, you know what? Years ago, you extended an offer to look at a proposal. And I kept your information and I never forgot that. Thank you. Would you be willing to look now? And she said, sure, send it to me. So I sent it to her and she said, what else do you have? What else you got? You have other pieces? I go, yeah, you want to see more of it? I sent her a few more. She started to give me feedback on the proposal. She said, why don't you do this and change this? And I was like, okay. And I said, why are you giving me this free help? I'm very, I want to be very respectful of your time. And, uh, you know, what are we doing here? And she said, I'm making suggestions for a proposal that I could sell. And if you can make them, then we'll work together. So I was like, okay, so this is a test. You know, can I pivot what I'm doing? Can I change it a bit? Make a few. She didn't ask for a lot of changes. She said, okay. I signed with her. She took it out to every publisher under the sun that you can think of. And I was like, wow, we, we're going to, this is it. It's getting sent out. Oh my God, I'm rubbing my hands together. No, no, no. I mean, this is right after lockdown. But we got more no's. I mean, no one had, oh, yeah, maybe, but uh, it's a, we got one interested editor who wanted to meet. And she said, okay, um, we're going to meet with this one editor. And I said, this is great. And she said, she wouldn't meet with you if she didn't like the book. This is, and I said, oh, this is a, this is a, can I work with this chick test? And I was like, I get it. Cause you're not just meeting with the editor. You're meeting with the head of publicity. They wow. want to know if you can sell this idea. And when I got on the call, they said, trust me, they wouldn't waste their time if they didn't think there was something in it. And then they said, we love you and we love your writing. We've looked at some of your videos. Here's the thing. It's not this book. And I said, it's not. And they said, no, we don't think this book would sell. <laughs> I said, okay. I said, well, uh, they're like, are you really attached to this? I go, no, no, what do you think? These are the professionals, you know? So they said, we think that it should be tied to your TED Talk and yep. we think it is a self-help title. And I was like, okay, that's not at all what I thought, but okay. And they said, think about it. It should be, you know, something like that. And we're excited about the prospect of it. But this was a decision. I had to decide, do I want to change this completely to dance with this publisher? Or you don't have to, but of course I wanted to. They were the only ones who had any interest. And so that's what I did. I said, sure, let's do it. So what you realize what I was doing is I was signing on to work with one of the biggest publishers in the world, um, Simon & Schuster, which is no small thing, Atria Books, a fantastic publisher. And I was agreeing to now redo the book. Now I've been writing it for six, seven years. Right. Now I'm going to change it. And so with the next year, because, you know, it's two years till the book comes out. The first year is you writing it. The second year is editing and production, and then it comes out. It's a long lead time. And I will tell you this, and I'll leave it here. There were some really hard weeks and nights in there when I said, what did I do? Did I sign up to do something I don't want to do? Is this, what if I embarrass myself? What if everyone thinks this is garbage? What if everyone thinks I'm a, I'm a, yeah, a ninny, a privileged brat who doesn't know anything? Like, could have been anything. I, I, I ran all the scenarios in my head. And I got, I even went through a little bratty stage where I was like, maybe I don't want to do this. 
And then Suzanne said to me, oh, no, honey, you signed a contract. You're doing it. You don't walk away from that. So I did it. And here's what saved it. And I say this to you, to anyone who's an aspiring author who would like to work with a publisher, which is, it is a collaboration. I reworked this book from head to tail, retitled it, changed the focus, changed everything based on the feedback of that editor. And I struggled, but I realized I can do this in a way that I could do best. I can bring my best writing to the table and not have it sound like books I don't like. And that is precisely what I did. This is an amazing story. And I love this because someone that is such a terrific writer and storyteller as you and had all of those, like your TED Talk has how many views? Almost seven and a half million. Yeah. So, So having all of that information, like there are there are authors that get published that do not have uh, followings like that and platforms that they have been. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah, of course. So that's an amazing story. And I do have a question for you. Um, You said that, you know, and you and I both know that the gatelist style really like you, you really highlight and lean into the, the things that light you up and the things you love. And I find that with writing content too, like when I'm excited to be writing something Mm -hmm. for somebody, when I'm almost like selling myself what I'm writing about, Yes. Like I need to like, here, here's how I know I did a good job is I'm like, oh my God, I need to hire this person. And it's my client. You know what I mean? So, yeah. So did you find that when you had to transition and change the focus and, uh, rework everything, did, were you able to still find that, that lightness and that love in what you were writing? Absolutely. Okay, great. Absolutely. Because I took the clay. All I was doing was changing the mold. So what I knew that the, and she didn't say, here's the chapter. She was like, what's the arc? Because in fact, with, with any kind of nonfiction, it does have to have an arc. We have to take the reader from point A to point whatever, Z at the end of the book. And she's like, what's the arc going to be? And I struggled with that a little bit. I was like, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, you, you figure it out kind of as you do it. And here's what saved me. It wasn't about agreeing with the editor. I didn't agree with the editor all the time at all, but I tried to see through her to the reader. And I said, what would be the most helpful? What would be the most helpful to that person Mm -hmm. in the tone and in the way I do it? Because every writer has their own voice, their own approach. And I have mine and I haven't done it for years and years. It's pretty easy to tell something I wrote versus what someone else wrote. It just sounds like me. And so I said, there's no reason I can't bring in the elements of memoir and, you know, lyricism from poetry or writing, anything I love from it. There's no reason I can't bring, bring all that in. Genre is just the shelf it sits on, right? It, it can be all the things you want. So when people say, for instance, I want to write about my life story. Okay. But the publisher is going to say, what are we teaching? What are we taking the reader by the hand and doing and showing them? So I had to have not just my own stories in there, but think about where am I helping the reader to get? And that took some time. It took some real sitting in the work. You don't figure it out in an afternoon. It's also, I mean, just what I've read so far, it's also just, it's what I love about your writing is that it's so darn specific. You know, we, we, we always talk about being more specific yes. is actually more relatable. Yeah. Like I had your friend Leah also <laughs> <laughs> because of how specific you were and how she told, you know, the story is, and people should definitely get the book to read it so that I don't butcher it for them. But 
basically Leah told you to swallow a button and eat it. And you did because she was, I don't know, a bossy, bratty little yes, kid. And brat. <laughs> yeah. And you thought you had to do what she said. And we've all had that friend. And the way you were so specific about it brings that up for everybody. So I love that you like evoke those emotions. Well, Emily, one of the things people always say, and I'm sure they say to you too, and we've all asked ourselves is, does my story matter? Will anyone care that this happened to me? And will people will be quick to dismiss and go, no one cares that I did that. No one cares. You can make them care because you can tell the most specific story and people love to hear a story. It's not whether your own story has value and meaning in and of itself. It's what does that story then teach? And really, it really happened. This brat made me eat a thing you shouldn't eat. <laughs> and it didn't mean anything for 40 years. And then when I looked back at it, I said, oh, I know what this means. Look at all the other things I swallowed too. So when we can look at our stories that way and let them really, if we really let them steep a bit, that's the value. It's not, it was my climb up the Himalayas more important than your story. Your job as a writer is to make it matter. Mm -hmm. Ooh, so good. Um, Terry, this was really fun. And I definitely want to let everyone know how they can find you and connect with you and find your book. But before we do, is there a question I did not ask that you wished I had? Um, no, I thank God we covered everything. I mean, I personally can't wait for you to get to the end of the book because you interviewed one of my favorite people who is such a influence on me, Cy Montgomery. And so I'm curious to hear what you think about how, you know, because I wrote about her work. And since you have a connection with her, that's something, that's a good conversation I want to have with you. But yeah. I think you did a great job. I can't think of anything that I feel I should have been asked. No. Okay. I will. I'm not going to speed read because I, I no, like to soak, get I, yeah, I like to soak it all in, but I will definitely let you know my thoughts. I am a huge fan of Sai and oh. have many, many synchronicities with her books in like weird ways. So, <laughs> um, all right. So why don't you tell <laughs> Thank you. Um, all right. How can we find and connect with you online and also find a copy of the book? And I'll make sure everything you share is in the show notes too. Yes. The easiest thing is to go to unfollowyourpassion.com because you're more likely to remember that than my last name. Uh, Terry Trespicio is not a, a, a real hard name, but it can be tricky. So go to unfollowyourpassion.com. You'll see all the updates about um, all the information about the book and also what you get by buying, you know, and opting into that list there. Uh, you know, that's a great way to find me, but I'm literally on all the things. I'm you are. You're very visible. <laughs> I'm, hey, I've tried to be on there. I even try doing TikTok, although I'm not consistent with it, but I'm on Instagram. I am on LinkedIn and you can always email me through my website. Of course, I love, we all love to hear from people and it's a real treasure and a pleasure to have been here with you, Emily, who I'm so we glad I've gotten to know. Yes. Well, thank you so much for uh, changing my plan and being here with me. Thank you. Thanks. To learn more about She Built This and to join our community and get involved for yourself, visit www.shebuiltthis.org.